Good morning, everyone. Um, I'm wondering if you can all hear me? You hear me okay? Yeah. Mm. Great. Uh, well, I want to say it's such a, it's such a delight to, um, to be here, to, to, to see you in this way. You know, the Houston Zen Center is, um, is such an important part of my life. I, I was remembering this morning. So I used to live in Texas. I, I now live in California, but I began my Zen practice in Texas. And it's hard to get the years right, but I think I moved away in 2006 from Texas. And um, this morning I was just appreciating so much that um, even as the years have gone by and kept going by, um, that my relationship to um, my teacher, the abbot, and to the physical building of the Houston Zen Center, the, the, the Zendo itself and the grounds, and then to the, to the community, to the Sangha, that I um, get to continue to have this nourishing relationship in my life, um, even at a distance. I was feeling really, really lucky this morning, and I want to thank you for continuing to allow me to feel like a member of this community. It's really, really important to me. I feel really, really lucky. So really grateful to um, practice together with all of you. Uh, even though I don't see you in person so often. I was there, I was there most recently in September. And one of the things I noticed, and you can check this out with my family, is um, I came back and I was just so happy. <laughs> I was just really happy, you know, um, the pandemic, I just hadn't hadn't sort of been with human beings that much. Um, and so to get to be out there with all of you really, uh, it, it did me a lot of good. And I'm really excited to be back um, in just a few weeks for the end of the practice period and um, to participate in the session and the Shuso ceremony uh, will be just great. So, uh, yeah, yeah. So this morning, I, I have a sort of train of thought that I want to, um, that I want to uh, offer. Um, I, I read a book recently um, that really, really impacted me. Um, I read a book that uh, clarified something for me about what it's like to be alive at, at, at this moment in our time. Um, and I thought about it and talked about it. And then I actually read it again, which is a little bit unusual. I don't often sort of read a book and then, and then read it again. Um, but, but I did. And I, I want to start by saying a little bit about this book. So it's called, um, it's called Radical Hope. It's by um, a philosopher, a professor at the University of Chicago named Jonathan Lear. Um, Radical Hope. And the subtitle is Ethics in the Face of Cultural Devastation. Kind of an intense title, I acknowledge. Ethics in the Face of Cultural Devastation. And so it's a hard book to, to summarize. It's, it's, it's layered and it's dense, it's complicated, but it's, um, it tells the story of a person named Plenikou, who was um, in, the, in the 19th century and into the 20th century, the chief of the Crow Nation. Um, the people uh, who had settled beginning in about 1700 
in what is now Wyoming and Montana. Um, and were eventually forced uh, onto a reservation in the 1880s. And Plenicu is, is really fascinating, is really an important figure because he, he's alive and he's leading his people uh, at this time of just incredible disruption and upheaval, where a traditional way of life is coming to an end uh, and a brand new way of life um, is is beginning. Um, he lived then until the, he died in 1932. So um, he's the figure that sort of is the pivot point in this culture. Um, and this book, the Jonathan Lear book, takes really seriously what that transition must have been like, what that historical moment must have felt like for, for Plenty Coup and for the Crow people. So really, profound transition. It was the end of an entire, entire way of life, um, an entire way of making meaning, of, of understanding the world, a whole set of values and practices uh, that weren't available in the same way anymore once the entire way of life had changed. So just for example, a, a, an important traditional Crow virtue was courage. It, a culture that admired courage, that admired bravery, that tried to raise um, its young people to be brave. Um, but what courage meant traditionally was uh, courage in battle. The Crow for one or 200 years have been in these ongoing wars um, with um, the Sioux and the Cheyenne. So courage meant courage in battle or maybe courage in um, the hunt, subsisted by hunting buffalo. And so this book takes the question really seriously. Courage is important to a culture. Courage means these types of behaviors in war or in the hunt. What does it mean to be courageous when the war is over and there's no buffalo? How do you raise your children to be courageous if what courage means uh, isn't available anymore? By definition, courage is these particular activities and the culture didn't have access to them in the same way. So the book is super interesting. It's historically super interesting. I, I, didn't, know, I didn't know much about this, this particular moment in history. It's, it's philosophically really interesting, like what happens at a, a transition like that. Um, but I'll say I didn't read it and reread it for its historical interest. Um, you know, I, I think part of what resonated for me, part of why I was drawn to this book and why I've been thinking about it, um, is that it names something for me about now about my life and my culture now. Um, uh, we're in a time of great cultural disruption and change and upheaval. Um, we're at a moment that feels to a lot of people really fraught, I think, um, environmentally fraught, uh, culturally and politically fraught, um, coming out of this pandemic that turned most of what we know upside down in a real way. 
So for me, there's really something to learn from this book, um, from this other period, this other historical period of great disruption and loss and change, and from the way that Plenty Coup and the Crow um, made their way. Is there something for us to learn about how they, how they made their way? So I, I, I wanna say, I do wanna hold this lightly. You know, cultures are always changing. Things are always changing. Uh, we know that. Um, uh, maybe more than anyone, we should know that. It, it's a basic, basic teaching of our way. Um, so are the current changes now more dramatic than the changes in my grandparents' lives? Um, all four of my grandparents left agricultural lives in their childhoods for urban lives. Um, are the changes in my life more dramatic or disruptive than those? I, 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 don't, I don't know. Um, I, in a way, I don't know where I would have to stand in order to make that comparison. Does that make sense? All I have is my life. So I'm not saying that I know for sure that this moment has more disruption or change or upheaval than other historical times. But what I do know is that sometimes it feels like that. It feels like that to me. And I think it feels like that to um, many other people. Again, I wanna make room for lots of different experiences. People have lots of different kinds of experiences, but um, there is a lot of anxiety about the future. That feels true to me. I, I feel it in myself, and I hear a lot of people around me uh, reporting that. Um, you know, the climate emergency, the, uh, the ways we're just beginning to reckon with the impact on our lives of these massive technological changes, the internet and social media, the cultural and political sort of fraying in the society, it really impacts people. And I think a lot of people worry about the future, what's coming. In the book, uh, Lear quotes, there was an elder in the, in, in the tribe, um, a crow medicine woman named Pretty Shield. And, and she used to say, um, I'm trying to live a life I don't understand. So this is after the transition, now on the reservation. She would say, I'm trying to live a life I don't understand. Her, her granddaughter wrote a, wrote a book, wrote a, wrote a memoir, and in it, um, she says that her grandmother would say this a lot, actually. I'm trying to live a life I don't understand. Um, the granddaughter reports, um, that they would be working together, that they would be doing something together and her grandmother would just go silent. And then she would, she would sort of moan, she would make this sound. And she would say, I'm trying to live a life I don't understand and I don't know what it will be like for my children. That's a really heartbreaking moment. That's a really heartbreaking story. And I think a lot of people now feel some version of this, at least some of the time. I'm trying to live a life I don't understand and I don't know what it will be like for the next generations. Um, 
times of great change are hard. They come with a lot of anxiety, anxiety about the future, um, fear that we don't know what it will be like. So read a little, little quote from, from Lear. This is a little abstract, but I'll, I'll unpack it a little bit. He, um, he says, a culture does not tend to train the young to endure its own breakdown. A culture does not tend to train the young to endure its own breakdown. And it is fairly easy to see why. A culture embodies a sense of life's possibilities, and it tries to instill that sense in the young. It's going to go on a little bit here. This inability to conceive of its own devastation will tend to be the blind spot of any culture. Inability to conceive of its own devastation will tend to be the blind spot of any culture. By and large, a culture will not teach its young. These are the ways in which you succeed. You can succeed, and these are the ways in which you will fail. These are dangers you might face, and here are opportunities. These acts are shameful and these are worthy of honor. And oh yes, one more thing, this entire structure of evaluating the world might cease to make sense. Lear is saying that cultures don't do that. He says, this is not an impossible thought to teach, but it is a relatively new idea in the history of cultures. So his claim is that cultures teach uh, Ideas, concepts, values, ways of making meaning. But what they don't know how to teach is what to do when those stop making sense. What if that doesn't apply? Right? What if it doesn't function anymore? That's his claim. So I want to say that, that Jonathan Lear, it's, it's, a, it's a great book. It's a really interesting book, and he knows a lot of things. He knows a lot about 19th century history. Um, he knows about Heidegger and Aristotle and Kierkegaard and Freud. Um, uh, but I am here to report that he does not know about Mahayana Buddhism. He does not know about Mahayana Buddhism. So he says... Cultures teach categories of making meaning, and they don't know how to teach what to do when those categories don't work. I would say that is our whole thing. That is precisely what we teach. Now, our tradition has to offer that feels so useful to me at a time of anxiety, is that we have beautiful, intricate, sophisticated categories for making meaning. And we understand the importance of letting go of them, letting go of them when situations change. right in the middle of the concepts that we most value and cherish and teach, we have the understanding that those concepts are empty, that they 
can't actually reach reality. Dynamic, ungraspable, interpenetrating reality. And that it's important to teach ourselves how to let go of the concepts in order to respond in wise and loving ways to the situations in which we find ourselves. Which is to say that I think our tradition has genuine resources, has deep and important intellectual and psychological and ceremonial resources for times of upheaval and change and disruption. Um, the more I thought about this, the, the sort of luckier I felt um, to have been exposed to these teachings that I think can guide us in a time of real anxiety. We have real medicine for the times that the categories of making meaning seem not to apply anymore. Because we understand deeply how to pick them up and how to let them go. So just as an example, I'll say we have an entire swath of sacred texts, an entire like gigantic slice of our tradition um, <laughs> that basically just makes this point. <laughs> it's like, um, here are categories, let them go. Here are categories, let them go. Here are categories, let them go. Um, and what I'm thinking of is the, uh, what's called the Prajna Paramita literature. So these texts are uh, a couple thousand years old. It's the perfection of wisdom sutras. Um, really, really important. There are a lot of different texts, actually. Um, there's maybe 40 or maybe even more. There's the perfection of wisdom in 8,000 lines and the perfection of wisdom in 25,000 lines, the perfection of wisdom in 100,000 lines, the Diamond Sutra. Um, and then there's the Heart Sutra. So the Heart Sutra comes, uh, it is, is, is a Prajnaparamita text, is a, a text about the perfection of wisdom, which is precisely about this letting go of categories. The Heart Sutra is incredibly important in our tradition. It's chanted every single day in Zen temples all over the world. Um, we chanted it. I tried to look at the time. An hour and 45 minutes ago. And um, we'll probably chant it tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. It is, it is right at the center of what we know and how we practice. And what the Heart Sutra is, is, is a negation in a way, a letting go of categories. And really, really importantly, it's not a letting go of someone else's categories. It's not saying your ideas don't work, but, but my ideas work. That, that, that's actually, that, that's one of the problems of the world. That's not medicine, right? The Heart Sutra is taking our ideas, our very best, most sophisticated, most profound uh, analysis of reality, took us centuries to work it out. These are our very best ideas. And in the Heart Sutra, we let them go. We acknowledge that they're empty. We acknowledge that they aren't permanent or fixed, that they can't reach the way things really are. Um, 
So this is very, very familiar to a lot of you, but, but just quickly, I'll, I'll name some of, the, some of the work that the Heart Sutra does, some of the ways it um, offers these categories and let's go with them. Um, so one very important uh, Buddhist insight, um, analysis, you, you could say way of making meaning, way of understanding reality is called the five skandhas. The five skandhas are the five aggregates. It's an analysis. It, it's a way of dividing what we might think of as our self. I might think here's a self. And the tradition realized that if we study that deeply, we can divide that up into sort of five different streams that all together feel like a self, but actually it, it's these five aggregates or heaps, these constituent parts. And so the parts are form, sensation, perception, formation, and consciousness. Basic, helpful, profound Buddhist teaching. We could talk a lot more about it sometime. Um, many of you, I'm sure, have studied the five skandhas for years or decades. And here's the Heart Sutra. So again, the five skandhas, form, sensation, perception, formation, and consciousness. The Heart Sutra, given emptiness, there is no form, no sensation, no perception, no formation, no consciousness. One of our best ideas, and we just let it go. I don't want to spend too much time on this because it basically every word in the heart sutra does this, but you know, the, the, the 18 datus, there's another very kind of complex way of describing how, how um, experience arises. So uh, I and sight, I and an object that I see create um, consciousness of vision in me. Um, and because there's six senses and then six, objects that the senses interact with and there's six kinds of consciousness it's sort of an intricate list the point is it's a list of 18 things and the things are eyes ears nose tongue body mind sight sound smell taste touch object of mind and then realm of sight it goes through the list again to realm of mind consciousness all of you know exactly what i'm going to say next i'm going to quote the heart sutra which says beautifully, no eyes, no ears, no nose, no tongue, no body, no mind, no sight, no sound, no smell, no taste, no touch, no object of mind, no realm of sight to no realm of mind consciousness. It's one of our very best ideas. It's one of the ways we orient ourselves. It's one of the ways we make meaning. It's one of the ways we understand what we're doing here. And we see that it's empty and we let it go. So, Lear in this book about the crow, it points out that in times of profound change and disruption, um, it's really a struggle to let go of what we've known. And, and that's really, really fair. That, that's true. Um, but what I want to suggest is that we have real medicine for how to do that, for what it is to let go, 
of what we know. And that that can be really helpful at a time like this. At any time. But maybe especially at a time when it feels like there's a lot to let go of. Um, something else that Lear notes in this, in this really wonderful and inspiring book about, about the crow is that in a time of change, part of the problem, uh, individuals or for a culture, I mean, it's interesting, it's called ethics in the face of cultural devastation. So ethics has to do with living well. How do we live well? And part of the problem for a culture when things change so dramatically is the question of how you live well, what an excellent life looks like, gets really complicated because what are the models? What do you aspire to? We need, psychologically, we need models. We need visions of excellence. We need heroes. Um, so the problem or the difficulty is if that model is fixed to a particular set of circumstances, and then the circumstances change, then it's really confusing to know how I am supposed to live an excellent life. Um, so if excellence is courage in battle against the Sioux. And now the Sioux live on their own reservation and the Crow live on their, the war is over. How do you live an excellent life? What is excellence? You, you see how the model doesn't apply anymore. It doesn't, it doesn't help anymore. The model gives us something to orient towards. And if the model is fixed, when the situation changes, it's really confusing. What do we orient towards? Right? But luckily, again, I think our tradition has, has real medicine for this because our model, our, our model for excellence, our ideal, that which we aspire to, is inherently, inherently, inherently adaptable and flexible. Um, our vision of excellence is the bodhisattva. Bodhisattva. A bodhisattva is a being who vows to attain Buddhahood for the benefit of all. So motivated by great compassion for the suffering of the world, a, a bodhisattva vows to attain Buddhahood. So traditionally, this meant thousands of lifetimes of cultivating all kinds of different virtues and insights and wisdom and practices. So inherently, in, in, if you sort of feel into what that vow would mean, right in it is I'm going to go into a bunch of different situations <laughs> where I don't know what I will, how I will respond. Once I see what is required of me by those situations, I will cultivate the virtues necessary to respond. That seems really important. It's not, I will show up and know what to do. That's not the Bodhisattva path. I will show up and see what needs to be done. But it's not even, and then I will be able to do it. 
So I may show up and see that what's required is incredible amounts of patience. The Bodhisattva path is not that I show up with that patience already in hand. I show up, I see what's required, and I cultivate what's required. If what the situation requires is generosity, and I am not a generous person, our tradition gives you a bunch of ways to practice being generous. So it's a path. It's something that you work at. And in the traditional understanding, it's a long path. (laughs) (laughs) So we are going to be in so many different situations that are going to require so many different kinds of virtues. And our job isn't to know in advance what those virtues are or to have them already. It's to be committed to. learning it's committed to learning there's a kind of profound um responsiveness in this ideal it responds to different circumstances Um, and it's an ideal that takes seriously the possibility of uh, rising to the challenges before us um, by seeing what's necessary and cultivating that. Again, you don't have to have it already. Again, in the traditional cosmology, this really is. I mean, it's, it's thousands of lifetimes. It's all kinds of different realms, right? going to be in in uncountable different situations. And that's our ideal. And I want to suggest that that's an incredibly helpful ideal for a time that things are changing, right? An excellent life is a bodhisattva life. And we don't have to know in advance what that looks like. Built in is that we won't know what it looks like. And again, there are particular practices. So you don't have to just figure it out. There are, there are things you can uh, teach yourself. There are things that you can do that build capacities and build virtue. So I'm gonna offer one practice. Uh, there's one practice that I have found helpful in my my thinking and feeling about, about all these things. Um, it's from uh, a Buddhist teacher named Joanna Macy. And uh, Joanna Macy is, is, is a Dharma teacher who, who really, really takes seriously um, the mind states that, that we're talking about this morning of um, anxiety, uh, fear for the future, even dread or despair. Um, you know, she, for decades now, has, has been um, practicing and leading groups and writing in a way that takes really seriously what it's like for us to live at a time of real environmental devastation. Um, uh, she really looks right at it in a way that allows people or encourages people to feel the profound grief and loss and destabilization of 
environmental um, catastrophe and of war um, and of political chaos. Her, 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 her practices really are to, to look right at that stuff um, and to cultivate a wise and loving response to it. What is it to cultivate a, light, a wise and loving response to um, the intense challenges of, of our time? One of the things that's so cool about, about her work that I admire so much is that a lot of it is, um, is group work, which I think is really, really important. I think it's actually really difficult to, to face things this large, to, to feel the sort of anxiety and dread of the world's changing and I don't know what it's going to be like for my kids. I, I think it's actually a, a lot to do a, alone. You know, it's a lot to hold. Um, and so I think part of what's really helpful about Joanna Macy is she offers many different things, but part of what she does is, is kind of group work where people can like sort of hold it together. And, and I think that's really insightful because I think we do need, we do need help uh, with these mind states. Um, so the practice, the practice that I want to offer is Joanna Macy's version actually of a very ancient practice. And it's a practice that comes from the Prajnaparamita Sutras. It comes precisely from these sutras that are about letting go of categories. And it's a practice, um, it's a meditation. Uh, um, <laughs> so great. It's a meditation of jubilation and transformation is what it's called. And so it's basically a meditation on virtue. It's a meditation on goodness. Um, on merit. What you do in this meditation is you think, uh, I'll read in, in, in a moment, John Macy's version of it kind of slowly and you can feel your way into it, but it's, um, uh, you bring to mind all of the good acts that have ever occurred that anyone has ever done anywhere. You really feel how much, uh, uprightness and patience and energy and wisdom and love and solidarity and uh, kindness there has been in the universe. How many beings have done that? And you, you gather it all together into what she calls a great ball of merit. Um, Edward Conzi, who's um, an early translator of a lot of Sanskrit texts into English, he calls it a lump of merit. <laughs> It is really, really like they gathered into a big lump of merit. But I do think that ball of merit is more, um, is maybe more dignified. But so you make this great ball of merit and then you dedicate that towards liberation, towards awakening. So this practice of dedicating merit, you know, comes from our insight that everything is interconnected, everything interpenetrates. Um, so it's our understanding of, of, of cause and effect because everything interpenetrates everything you think or say or do impacts the whole universe and everything in the whole universe impacts you. So when you gather goodness in your mind and dedicate it, that impacts everything. Um, and, and that actually doesn't go quite far enough. Impact, it's not even impact. So like for the Huayen school, 
for, for, for our understanding, it's not that everything impacts. It's not that you impact the universe. You create the universe. Everything is actually um, mutually causing all the time. I am caused right now by all of you and the whole universe. You are caused right now by everyone else in the entire universe. So because of that, what we do, where we point our life energy matters. That's the universe we're causing. And so that's why uh, regularly in service this morning and every time we do something good, basically, we, we point it towards <laughs> liberation for all beings. And an important part of this emotionally is this, uh, the emotion of jubilation, of joy, of gratitude, of delight. We think how much good there is, how much honesty and decency there has been throughout time. And you let that just fill you up, the joy of that. And then we point that um, towards liberation. Um, so it's going to take just a minute, but I will. I'll read this Joanna Macy's version of this old, of this old practice. It, it's a little bit of a guided meditation. So you're welcome to close your eyes if, if that feels right. Take a minute or two, and, and then we'll end. So relax and close your eyes. Open your awareness to the fellow beings who share with you this planet time. In this town. In this country. And in other lands. See their multitudes in your mind's eye. Now let your awareness open wider yet to encompass all, all beings who ever lived of all races and creeds and walks of life, rich, poor, kings and beggars, saints and sinners. See the vast vistas of these fellow beings stretching into the distance like successive mountain ranges. Now consider the fact that in each each of these innumerable lives, some act of merit was performed. No matter how stunted or deprived the life, there was a gesture of generosity, a gift of love, an act of valor or self-sacrifice in the workplace, in a hospital, at home. From these beings and their endless multitudes arose actions of courage, kindness, of teaching and healing, let yourself see these manifold and immeasurable acts of merit. Now imagine you can sweep together these acts of merit, sweep them into a pile in front of you. Use your hands, pile them up, pile them into a heap, viewing it with gladness and gratitude. Now pat them into a ball. It is the great ball of merit. Hold it now and weigh it in your hands. Rejoice in it, knowing no act of goodness is ever lost. It remains ever and always a present resource, a means for the transformation of life. So now, with jubilation and gratitude, you turn that great ball, turn it over, over into the healing of our world.
just want to say how happy I am to to be here with with you, um, thinking and and talking about the Dharma. Um, I'm feeling the the jubilation of being together. Um, we have have done so much good already today. Gathering in community, taking care of the temple, bowing, offering incense, chanting sacred texts. I want to take all of the merit, all of the jubilation, the merit of what we're doing together and uh, offer it to the liberation of all beings. Well, there's a lot more to do. This is just one tiny practice in an ocean of practices, uh, one teaching in an ocean of teachings. Um, all times are difficult, but these times are difficult. These are anxiety producing times. And um, uh, we may have to cultivate virtues we haven't thought of yet to meet them. Uh, and we can do it. Thank you all very much. <laughs>